0: You're listening to a Metro Podcast.
1: You're listening to Metropolis, Metro's podcast about urban affairs and life in Canadian cities. I'm Luke Simcoe. I'm a former journalist here at Metro, but now I'm the communications director at uh, Urban and Digital, a sort of nonprofit NGO civic tech firm here in Toronto. Uh, And I'm joined today with my usual co-host, Matt
0: Elliott. Hey, I'm a city columnist here in Toronto. I have not changed jobs recently. I'm the only one. Um, So we got a good episode for you guys today. Uh, This past summer here in Toronto, you might have heard that Mayor John Tory surprised a lot of people, including me, when he announced a plan to build a new park in the downtown core. This 21-acre plan would add much-needed green space to Toronto's downtown, but there's a twist, and here it is. It would be built directly over the railway tracks that lead into Union Station, which is the busiest rail corridor in Canada. And the mayor wants to put a park-shaped hat right on top of that rail corridor. So obviously, this proposal brought about a bunch of questions about logistics, about costs, about timing, but it also earned a whole bunch of praise for being bold, creative, and recognizing that Toronto's downtown, like a lot of downtowns, is lacking in park space. RailDAC Park isn't the only example of cities looking to use the space above their railways as opportunities for new public and private development, so we figured it was worth talking about. Joining us this week is Michael Machino. He's a principal with Intuitive, a group of consulting engineers who work all over the world. They have experience working on projects that build over rail corridors, and uh, Michael is here to tell us all about this trend. Welcome, Michael. Pleasure to be here. So let's just get started Uh Tell us why it's has become a trend. Why are cities looking at the land over rail corridors as places for development?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, If you look at Toronto in particular, and look what's been happening over the last number of years, you know, the city, uh, I like to say the city is growing up. It's it's getting more dense. Um, There's land is more scarce, less opportunities for developable land. So in some ways, building over the tracks is a way to essentially create land where none exists in the city. The other thing that we see happening in the city is, you know, you see the large increase in residential towers going up. There's a large increase in in people wanting to live downtown. I know in our firm, uh, most of the young people they don't want to be living out in the suburbs and, and commute an hour hour and a half. They they want to live downtown, where they're five minute walk from work or a bike ride in.
0: I hear that. So, so yeah, yeah,
2: so there's there's a large increase in in residential uh, communities downtown. And so you know, if you, t- if you take a look at a map of the city of Toronto, you'll see there's not a lot of green space. You know, in the in the downtown core. So we have a large influx of people wanting to live there and you have to build uh, communities, places for them to actually, you know, go with their families, you know, walk their dogs and spend some time in in, in some green space. So it's also about improving the quality of life.
0: And can you give us some examples of, uh, in addition to railed up park, where has this been done? Like where have people built over rail corridors recent times?
2: Yeah. So uh, I think a good example of this uh, and almost actually directly applicable to what we're thinking about doing on the rail park is a job that we just finished in Manhattan. The um, project was called Manhattan West Platform. And what it was, was um, a developer had a, a piece of land that was essentially sliced in two by the rail lines that run into Penn Station, which is actually the busiest uh, rail line in North America. And right. so, you know, a lot of traffic there. It was a quite a large, it was about 240 foot wide span. And so... It, you know, people thought that that land or that site was basically unde- undevelopable, and so they they came to us and looked for a solution as to how we could actually you know build this. The real the real challenge there with any building over any rail line is you cannot impact the operations of the rail line. You know, they carry a lot of people and they carry them every day and they carry them for the majority of the hours in a twenty four cycle. So there's very little downtime if you want to get in there and work. So you know, really the trick or the challenge was to be able to do this without. Um, actually having to go down into the tracks and and stop any of the track operations. So when we got involved, the thinking was that the rail line could only interrupt work um, four hours a day. So they gave very little opportunity to get actually down there and work. So we developed a scheme that allowed us to essentially clear span from one side to the other without having to get down into the deck at all. And as we developed the scheme, we actually found out that it wasn't actually four hours a day that they could shut the the rail lines down. It was four hours a week. So basically, oh, wow. yeah, anything, any kind of you know column support type structure where you had to put intermediate columns in to create that span would have been essentially impossible. So, you know, here it was. You know, the either that you you do something, you come with a solution that's innovative to allows this project to go ahead, or it really is undevelopable space. And so, what we decided to do was to use essentially existing bridge technology, where we we um, built the girders at one end, and we used what's called um, segmental precast construction. So uh, picture a box type of a girder, bridge girder, it's in this form of a box. And you cast pieces of that box. uh, Think of it maybe as a sausage that you slice into pieces, right? So you, you cast these pieces of this box offsite, because there's not a lot of room on the site to actually have materials. So these units were cast offsite. They were shipped to the site just in time. And at one end of the site, we built a temporary platform. so it it involved a one-time involvement of getting down into the tracks to put some central columns. But apart from that, there was a it was basically a steel platform that was built to cover that end of the uh, of the platform just enough to be able to construct these these girders. We also constructed um, walls along the edges of the site and and then on those walls, we ran essentially crane rails and a very large um, gantry, we called the launcher, it was actually built it was by a firm in Italy. It was shipped to the U.S. and it was mounted over top of this platform. What the gantry did was it took the individual segments uh, that were cast and it essentially brought them across and lined them up over top of this platform. And then those pieces were stressed together. And, uh, we inserted cables through holes in these in these segments, and then those cables were tightened and essentially squeezed these units together, and it created a. A large 240 foot long girder, <laughs> and then the gantry would then pick up the girder, and it rolled longitudinally along the the site, and it basically moved that girder across the hole. And when it got into the right position, it would lower it and drop it into place onto bearings that were that were built on the on the edges of the uh, of the site.
1: The so, ambition that's there is kind of it's, it's interesting, right? Like you talked about how there's not that much developable land, right? And Obviously, we're going to these great lengths, right? Like we're shipping in, you know, launchers, as you said, from Italy and all these other places and going through these tremendous sort of engineering hurdles to get there. And it certainly speaks to kind of like a that there is this increasing demand for space in these cities. I'm actually a little curious about um, that, that Manhattan Project you were working on is part of the broader Hudson Yards Project, right? It's actually uh, just... Um I think it's actually, now let me get my directions, I think it's east of
2: the Hudson Yards. Yeah. So it's just, it's not exactly at the Hudson Yards site. That's a whole another site. And there's another overbuild project going on there.
1: Yeah, well, no, uh, it's, it's insane. It's like the largest private real estate development yes. in American history. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, the,
2: it's, the same, yeah. it's the same idea that, you know, you, know you, you want to develop that area and you need to basically, you know, cover this deck if you want to have a chance of creating any kind of a... Um, a development site, which is you know, welcoming to people, allows people to you know, not just go into the buildings, but also move back and forth across you know, the podium area. And so this is area. a
1: bit of a nerdy question, but I'm kind of wondering, like, when you think about those things, you're putting these towers on top of a structure that you've built in the air, right, essentially. And so what, like, how thick or like, you know, or what's, you know what I mean? Yes, like how, you know, because I'm seeing things like your project or the Hudson Yards project, where there's like condo towers on top yes. of, that aren't, don't have foundations digging into the ground. So I'm just sort of curious
2: how that works. Well, you have to be a little bit creative, I guess, in how you do that because, in actual fact, the platforms themselves, they support um, uh, essentially some some park lands, some low-rise structures. The actual towers, the main towers themselves, they sit with their foundations actually off to the side. They're not actually directly on top of the platform. So they're off to the side, the buildings rise up, and then they essentially can't lever out over, uh, over the deck park. So... You create essentially the main cores of the, of the, the main structures of the buildings are um, on the sides of this of uh, sides of the platform. The platform itself supports, you know, some landscaping, some low-rise, you know, maybe some retail uh, type buildings, some podium type buildings, um, but not the actual main towers themselves.
0: The first time I heard about Rail Deck Park, and now hearing you describe what's going on in Manhattan with this project, uh, I just. Immediately think, hell, this sounds very, very expensive. Like, is it a, a huge premium to build a building like this over a more traditional building in the ground sort of building? Well, definitely, it's expensive. Um, now, for example, go back to New York. You know, what's the land value That's in true. New York? Yeah.
2: So, when you compare the land value in New York to the cost of what it took to actually build that, you know, obviously it was it was feasible. You know, in Toronto, land prices aren't as high mm-hmm. as they are in New York, but you know they are climbing as as land becomes more scarce. So, you know, yes, it's expensive to build, but again, it's, it's about, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity and um, there will be a time when you basically run out of land in the city and you need, if you want to continue developing, you, you have to do something, you know, bold like that. And again, as I mentioned before, the, this whole issue about making communities, you know, people live downtown and you have to create. So, you know, there's a price to pay for developing a city, which is inhabitable. And, and suitable for people that actually want to live downtown. And that's that's the price of actually building uh, a city that people actually want to go to and want to live in.
1: It's interesting, like, you talked about how you were only allowed to disrupt the train service there for four hours a week. You know, um, when whenever any of those services do get disrupted, it's horrible for commuters. And obviously, in, in New York's case, and here at Union Station in Toronto, too, it's an economic thing, too, right? If you, a bunch of CN trains get delayed, that's a big problem that, you know, ricochets outwards. So I'm kind of curious, like, how sort of recently were we able to do this in a way that um, it didn't disrupt that? Were there sort of newer technologies or anything that came online, or was it just a matter of someone looking at it and and solving the problem? Like, would we have been able to do this without disrupting train service 10, 20, 30 years ago? Well,
2: Actually, the, going back to Manhattan, the the actual solution didn't disrupt the change train service at all. You know, once we got that temporary platform in all of the girders, that was all. All that operation about moving the girders, dropping over the hole, that was all done without disrupting the service at all.
0: So you didn't need those four hours a no, week.
2: Wow. Exactly. So we what we did was they shut. They did shut down uh, service in in the evening for a few hours. You know, about four hours, and so we took advantage of that window. So that's why all all of the the construction of the girders was done. In a protected environment right and then only once they shut down the train service in the evening were those girders then rolled over top of the hole and dropped in so um it's actually i wouldn't say that there's a large technological advancement that has resulted in this but what we used was really you know conventional bridge technology you know it's it's you know when you build a bridge over a large you know uh, valley you know you would have to do it in segments and launch these these things out you know one segment at a time it was really taking that but where the innovation came in was taking that technology that exists and adapting it to something which wasn't really it had never really been used like that but the technology was there it was just a question of how you use the technology and that's where the that's where the innovation came in so you know what is stopping that from being done elsewhere there's really nothing nothing to stop it uh, it's really more i think a question of economics i said you you know if you look again at toronto you know when there's a lot of available land you know the cost of land is not so high it'd be very difficult to justify you know building something like that but as land becomes scarce the land values go up and you know you're running at you want to actually then uh, create more even green space as we're trying to do with this rail park well now there's another reason you know for actually doing that it makes the project then you know more feasible both economically and also you know from a um, a community perspective
1: well yeah that community perspective uh, kind of speaks to another project your firm was involved in the the Calgary public Library um, I'm not exactly sure when it was completed but that's obviously a case where land is even less you know valuable than it would be here in Toronto and it's Calgary and elsewhere and um, and yet they chose to build the library on top of their LRT station so can you tell us a little bit about like why they chose that like what was what was their rationale obviously from a community perspective to do that the way they did
2: yeah so there you know there was a site that uh, looked like it was a good location for the library, but unfortunately the site is again disrupted by this, the LRT line running through that. And so the question as well is, you have a desirable location, you know, how, what can you do to try to, you know, make it feasible to allow this project to move forward? So there, you know, as again, you know, in Manhattan, you know, all of these building over over rail lines or trans lines, it's always the same problem. And that is really keeping the, keeping the trains running. So there, um, the challenge was really to create an to basically encapsulate the LRT system so that it was protected and running in its own protected right away, and then build the new library structure over top of that. Um, and so for us, um, you know, the challenge there was to try to build this encapsulation structure while again keeping things running. You know, to relocate services. Things were done in various stages to be able to allow all of these things to happen but the real the interesting part about that was that this encapsulation work had to be done well in advance of the design of the actual library itself the library is a very um, very elegant very innovative structure and we were trying to help actually the design architect to understand what he could and couldn't do with with the facility and trying to um, not hamper him hamper his creativity so you know, the challenge early on was to somehow design and build this encapsulation while, while remaining or keeping flexibility in the layout of that library structure so that the architect had freedom to actually develop that design the way he really
0: wanted to do that. Are there limitations that come in terms of architectural design when you're building over a rail corridor? Like how, what sort of things well, are taken off the table when you build something like this versus just building a, a regular kind of building? Well, um, I
2: think each... I wouldn't say that, I don't think you really generalize it as one thing or two things. It really depends on the site. You know, another example, you know, is a building we did um, uh, with our former company at 33 Bloor, where we built um, a tower over top
0: of of, uh,
2: the TTC line.
0: Here in Toronto, yeah. Here in Toronto, yeah.
2: So same thing. So there in that case, you know, we we, uh, designed a series of, you know, large transfer girders to span across, you know, the width of the subway. And then those girders were designed specifically to take the loads of the building that was above it. So, um, you know, that was a case where the spans allowed that type of a solution to happen. Something like the Rail Park or or Manhattan West, or even, uh, well, Calgary Library was smaller, but the, the Rail Park or Manhattan West, those spans were very, very large. And, you know, to create a girder system to span all the way across. You know, like everything is possible. It just costs. It costs money, right? <laughs> right. So you look for ways to try to do. You know, is there a way to you know get those developments without actually having to, you know, uh, sit those towers you know over top of of
1: those large spanning structures? I guess it's interesting that people. I guess, or maybe it's heartening to see that people are willing to, as you said, sort of pay some of these these costs associated with this because it makes sense, right? Like, what better place for a library? than on top of a public transit station, right? If I want to live in a, in a tower, what better place than on top of a subway station? You know, if I want to have a, a new cultural facility or anything, you know, like we're busily building along all our transit corridors. That's in every city across Canada. That's generally sort of in an official plan somewhere that they want to increase density around here. And it's neat to see that this is sort of one way that they're going to be able to do it and that people are willing to do it.
0: Yeah. But well, we're talking a lot about the, the cost of, of building this way. But when we talk specifically about Rail Deck Park, parks are not generally money-making operations. Correct. So when you came across this proposal this summer from the mayor of Toronto, was that something that stood out to you? Is yes, that-
2: absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean that's that's the the big question mark with that project. You know, how how are we going to make that project feasible?
0: Right, you're so, not going to charge admission to the park or something.
2: Yeah, you know, I think you have a hard time paying for it, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> admission to the park. But, you know, the, the thing is you have to look beyond the park. You know, what about, you know, to the size? So maybe there's opportunities for development. And, you know, when you have now development, now you're bringing in, you know, tax revenue as well. Um, so you have other ways to generate funds that then can be used to help offset the cost of, of the rail park. I think a good example of that is, you know, we were involved with... Um, the project to look at reconstructing the Gardner Expressway east of east of Jarvis. Right. And yeah, I heard of that. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> 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 we may have talked about it on the show.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there, um, you know, we had come up with one solution there was to actually to move the whole Gardner northward on top of the rail lands. You know, right. build a rail deck or build a, uh, sorry, a deck over top of the rail line similar to Manhattan West or the rail park that we're talking about and use it to um, to run the gardener expressly over top of and then on top of that create a um, another level which would then be used for parkland oh you guys
1: were, it was the green gardener proposal
2: i actually wrote about yeah, it that, then, right? yeah yeah so and then the on either side of that what that does is if you move the gardener out of the way onto the rail lines, it frees up all that land for development okay so there you know what we found was that in fact you know, the amount of development that you could actually generate would really significantly, if not totally, offset the cost of the Gardner Expressway relocation. So that, you know, that kind of, those kind of opportunities exist. We have to just, you know, be bold and really, you know, take advantage of them.
0: I think with that proposal specifically, though, there was concern from the transit operators or the or the train operators about building over the rail corridors. Is that kind of resistance common when you start talking about this kind of thing?
2: Well, it's, you know, (laughs) absolutely, you know, it's, it's something to be taken into account. We did meet with, with Metrolinks mm-hmm. about that project a number of times, actually. And, you know, their concern was, you know, they're working on, they have their own initiatives, you know, the whole regional express rail, and they're still developing that. And so they, are, they were concerned at that time about limiting their flexibility because they weren't sure yet what they were going right. to do. And so, uh, you know, again, what we were, we were trying to put Forward to them was you know, a solution like we used on Manhattan West, where it was clear span. Really, doesn't impact them, right? You have to, you don't have to worry about um, columns running through. Like if you if the solution had been okay, we're going to span across this, re- and we're going to use intermediate columns in between your tracks. Okay, now you're limiting what they can do. But if you wind up with a solution which is a clear span solution, now you give them flexibility to actually move those tracks, you know, uh, in whatever manner they need to as they decide realign them as they decide they need to to suit their regional express rail. So, you know, it's definitely uh, is something which needs to be accounted for. But, again, if people are working together and, you know, you hear what the issues are, and then you try to come up with solutions that address those issues, then, you know, usually you'll find that there are solutions.
0: Uh, Speaking of coordination, uh, one of the things that comes up, Uh, Often, from city politicians uh, when they talk about transit is this idea that they will pay for transit with air rights above stations. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not something that has happened in this city very much. Um, Do you have any insight into sort of why politically or through the planning process we don't tend to see that taken advantage of of as much as we maybe would otherwise?
2: Um, My feeling is that in Toronto, this is all Relatively new,
0: hmm. you know.
2: Like I said at the beginning, the, the, the city is growing up, and we're just now getting to the point where these kinds of things that weren't necessary before are now things that we need to be talking about. And so, when you talk about something which is, I'll call it, you know, new. Or, I don't want to use it radical, but you know, things that are, are different than what we're no, accustomed to doing. Sometimes it takes some time. It takes a lot of people need to get, you know, more accustomed to what it means to them. Um, and how to actually work out the arrangements so that um, these things can move forward. So it takes some time. And I think we're just at the early stages of all of these types of things that we're starting to discuss now. But you know they're all certainly worth discussing. And I think as we move forward, you know these things will become, you know, will work themselves out. And I think we'll see uh, more of these what are right now seen as, as problems seem to disappear.
1: Well, that's really positive. I don't know. I, I kind of like the word radical, though. Maybe, you know, we should use <laughs> it more. It, yeah. Like, yeah, it should be Radical Deck Park, right? <laughs> yeah. so, you know, so we can put a half pipe in and it'll just be great. <laughs> um, what is, so Matt was talking about air rights and... I've sort of dipped my toe in this a little bit and cuz there's been some kind of conflict and consternation around exactly who owns the air, you know, above the the rail yards here. Um and I gather that that process is incredibly complicated and convoluted. Like I've had people attempt to explain like the actual you know, process behind air rights and stuff to me and it seems baffling and there's like I gather there's actually people whose entire profession it is to do like air rights searches and stuff like this so do you have any idea like any insight into that process like what's going well, on behind the, the scenes that makes it so crazy I think the
2: simplest way that I can describe it is, as I understand it is that for example Metrolinx owns the, uh, the tracks, right? They're running the tracks. And they own a certain height above those tracks to run their trains. So sort of think of it as an envelope that's covering that. Everything above that belongs to the city of Toronto, belongs to someone else. So when we talk about, you know, doing a rail deck or doing some kind of a development which is over top of those rail lines you have to deal with not only links issues, but you also have to deal with the City of Toronto. And the City of Toronto wants to make sure that they get value for whatever it is, you know, how do you value what is right now, you know, air. You know, it, it comes down to what it is that you're going to to develop above that and how you could develop above that and what is the actual value of that. And so, you know, you have in this case, you would have two different stakeholders, each with their own interests, and um, trying to set some kind of a a value for what is the value of of a uh, moving vertical above those above those rail
1: lines. How high do we, like, how high does Toronto own? Like, where, when does the air stop <laughs> do being... Do we own all
0: the way to space? Yeah, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I'm genuinely curious, I'm sure. Because
1: there's, and then you, but then you get into other stakeholders. There's, like, air traffic stuff and these sorts of things. But actually, like, but honestly, like, what do you know about that? Like, where does the air stop being Toronto? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't think
0: I have an answer for it. What's the, uh, the <laughs> it's one of those things that I don't think anybody really thought about Litigating until a certain point. But right? I want to
1: start my own libertarian paradise <laughs> in the sky. <laughs> Master, right.
0: like, I just need to know how high I have to go. I am curious. If I like, do I own like all the air above my house? Like, yeah. how high up does that go? That'd be very cool <laughs> to uh, to find out and make use of somehow. Maybe I can monetize it. Um, It's like Uber, but for air. Yes. (laughs)
1: Luke's
0: new VC pitch right there. (laughs) Um, Speaking of living and uh, living maybe uh, above a rail corridor, uh, they're talking about this new subway line in Toronto, this relief line. And one of the objections that has come up in the neighborhoods is that building underneath these old houses in some cases will lead to vibration and noise and all this stuff. So say for example, I live in a condo above a rail corridor. Am I gonna feel it? Am I gonna know it's there? Like what, what do you do to make sure that I don't?
2: Yes, uh, so that's a good question, you know, but that's honestly, it's just simply a matter of engineering. So, you know, we have the ability to, you know, analyze what are the vibration effects that would be transmitted, you know, into the ground and therefore into the structures. Um, so, and then from that, we would be able to mitigate that by putting in, you know, neoprene pads, things to isolate the, the tracks from the actual structure. So basically, you know, you get the vibrations because the tracks, if you fix the tracks hard to the structure below it, you know, that as those trains run over top and the rails are not quite perfect or the wheels are not quite perfect and you get a bit of, of, a bang from the, from the wheels onto the tracks that then translates into the structure, into the ground and, you know, these are vibrations that people feel. The trick is to isolate, you know, as when you isolate the tracks from the structure that is it's supporting it. Um, and then by doing that, you you minimize the amount of transmission of these vibrations into the ground and therefore into the structures that that are adjacent to them. So I guess the point here is that, yes, vibration is a concern, but it's certainly something that we know how to engineer around. And mm-hmm. it's just a matter of, you know, analyzing it and then developing proper details to be able to accommodate that and prevent that vibration.
0: Okay. Speaking of vibration, uh, whether you can feel it is one thing, but whether uh, it affects the buildings, I guess, is another. So say, you know, we build one of these structures about rail corridor, we fast forward 30, 50 years. What's the state of the structure? Is it, does it require more maintenance than another building? Is there a a greater cost to that?
2: No, I, I, you know, the first thing you're going to, it'll be um, the comfort of the of the people that are occupying the building. That will be, the most sensitive part of it, the structures themselves would certainly be robust to be able to handle the kind of vibrations that we transmitted. But no, the, the defining factor would be actually the comfort level of the occupants in those structures.
0: Hmm. And just in terms of maintenance in general, like are they more susceptible to anything versus?
2: Um, no, I would not say that. No? no I would not say that.
0: Interesting. Um, so let's go back to Rail Deck Park then because we started with Rail Deck Park. Um, it's a big proposal here in Toronto. The mayor is, is pushing for it. He believes in it. Uh, what advice would you give to uh, the mayor and council and City Hall, I guess, in general about embarking on this above a rail corridor adventure? Well, um, I would
2: say that certainly is something that uh, is feasible. We know it's feasible because we've done pretty much exactly that. In fact, uh, you know, the rail lands that we're talking about spanning are, you know, very close in span to what we did in Manhattan in Manhattan West. So, um, we know that it's it's feasible, but I think that the, really the key for the city, for the mayor, is to really uh, investigate thoroughly how to actually get this thing done. And to do that, you really do need to have somebody who knows, has done that. I mean, I hate to be... I hate the a shameful plug, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, what the mayor should do is is call me. <laughs> Just
0: give you a call. Yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, it really comes down to, you know, at this stage in the project, it really comes down to understanding how it can be done uh, and what would make it feasible. What are, the, what are the issues that need to be looked at in order to do such a development? Or, you know, things like, um, for example, the trains going underneath, we have to make sure that uh, to consider things like impact, if there's a derailment, okay, those kind of things have to ha- have to be looked at. You know, if, if there happens to be a fire and the train is on fire, and you've covered this thing, you have to account for that. So, you know, there's a number of things that go into the design of these types of, of structures that need to be flushed out now early on, so that you understand clearly what you're getting into, and then from that you move forward. So, really, the, I think the trick at this stage is to really get a good understanding of how to, how these projects are feasible. Uh, how much they'll cost, and how to actually uh, get them constructed, how the, how to make them
1: constructible. So we've spoken a lot about trains today, right? It's been a big sort of rail line and what we what we've been building over those. Um, what else are you seeing people build over, right? It's it's not like lands at a premium in, in cities all over the world, and it's not just rail yards, right? There are other places. There are freeways. There's the gardener you were talking about here. You know, are there other examples of things that have been built over things that you can think of that where this same sort of principles apply?
2: Uh, well, um, I, I think that you know you, you could you would find the same type of thing uh, with you know highways building over over hives. If you have a you know go back to the gardener for example, okay, it's not rail, it's cars, but there are areas of the gardener where it's it's sunken, right? And you could in fact uh, deck over top of that and and sort of encapsulate your your gardener expressway, you know you. You know, people, we talk about, you know, putting the gardener underground. Well, there's some areas of the gardener where it's already in a depressed um, um, elevation. And if you deck over the top of that, you've basically essentially put it underground by building over top. So, you know, there are things like that. And, and that would achieve the same type of thing as what we were talking about at the beginning is that, you know, it would allow now interconnecting of communities. You don't have this, you know, gaping uh, swath of land, which is occupied either by transit or by um, uh, an expressway. You've now connected the communities on either side of this um, public transit or, or, um, or highway. So, you know, decking over highways is similar to decking over rails. That, you know, it's really the same issues and the, uh, what it results in is really, it's the same benefits. It's really about, you know, inter, you know, connecting communities together. And, you know, I think there are opportunities even in Toronto for, for things like that over top of, of some of our highways.
1: Cool. I think I like ending on sort of, it's about connecting communities, right? It's, we've, you know, kind of drilled down to the specifics of engineering, which is actually, frankly, really nice to have on the show. We often talk to planners and these sorts of people. (laughs) So it's nice to get a, you know, a kind of nitty gritty, you know, explanation of these things because they're intertwined, right? But uh, yeah, it's nice to think about that and and to go from the nuts and bolts of it to the the practical and livable effects of it. So thanks a lot for coming on the show, Michael. You're most welcome. That was Michael Machino. Uh, A principal at Intuitive, a group of consulting engineers who've worked on transportation and community projects uh, across the globe. Uh, They're based here in Toronto. So stay with us. Uh, Matt and I are warming up our thumbs and we've got some opinions to share with you. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to Metropolis. Uh, So this is the part of the show uh, where we give a thumbs up or thumbs down to something cool or cities related that we encountered in the past week. Uh, I'm going to start and I'm just going to give a big thumbs up to protests. Uh, I was actually out of the country. I was vacationing in uh, Mexico uh, for a week while all of the inauguration stuff and the women's marches were going on and it was actually really kind of sad because I missed out but also really heartening to go check all my social media feeds and it was uniformly people in every city that uh, I follow people in taking to the streets and marching and kind of having a good time, but, you know, also just, you know, getting back and engaged and, you know, present with the political process. And, You know, it's been a bit of a hard year, uh, with, you know, everything that's happened politically, uh, but it's a nice reminder. And I, I draw on this a lot as someone who lived through the Rob Ford years here in Toronto, that sometimes these kind of very problematic politicians can actually really revitalize politics that as people get sort of active and, and realize that, you know, they have a role to play and can make a difference. And I think you saw that, um, you know, in all the women's marches and other protests that happened over the week. So I'm really curious to keep following it. Um, and I'm certainly not surprised that, uh, A lot of those protests were based in cities, so that makes me feel good.
0: I will second that for sure. It was a hell of a thing to see this past weekend. Very, very cool. Uh, I'm going to give a thumbs up to prioritization or proper prioritization, and I'm speaking here in terms of transportation. Uh, King Street in Toronto is one of the busiest streets in the city, and it is busy mostly with people who are riding streetcars who are taking transit. Uh, The numbers say that 65,000 streetcar riders use King Street every day versus 20,000 vehicles. So finally, uh, the city is looking at these numbers and saying, hey, maybe we should be getting those 20,000 vehicles, those cars off the street, so the transit vehicles can move faster and more efficiently. This kind of thing just makes a lot of sense to me, and I feel like it's finally an example of cities getting past the point where they just prioritize cars by default. So uh, it's exciting to see. It's going to lead to some backlash. It's already started with the uh, car eleven people of the world. But uh, I just want to put it out there that I think this is just makes sense. It is just really, guys, it's just math. So thumbs up to prioritization. Thumbs up to math.
1: Glad to see you got your slogan in there. <laughs> <laughs> Did my best. Cool. Well, that's another episode of Metropolis. Uh, you can find uh, all our past episodes uh, on SoundCloud and at metronews.ca. Uh, we'll also post our show notes there with some links to some of the projects that Michael talked about and uh, our thumbs up, thumb down list. And uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter at MetropolisCast. Talk to you next week. Yeah.
2: This has been a Metro podcast.